Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today we're talking about chapters 9 through 12 of Pride and Prejudice. In these chapters, Jane's severe cold is essentially holding Lizzie prisoner at Netherfield. Lizzie wants to go home, hates staying at Bingley's house with his sisters and Darcy. But Jane is too sick to be moved, and so Lizzie stays at Netherfield to take care of her. Darcy is also being held prisoner in these chapters by Elizabeth. As long as she's in the same house as him, he is going to keep falling in love with her, and he does not want to fall in love with her. In fact, and here's a quote, he really believed that if it were not for the inferiority of her connections, he should be in some danger. The chapters end with the two parties finally being separated, but the dynamics between Darcy and Elizabeth have shifted seismically in those few days. Here's the breakdown chapter by chapter. Chapter 9 starts with Mrs. Bennett coming to visit Netherfield in order to check on Jane. The way this plays out is interesting. Lizzie sends for Mrs. Bennett. Lizzie wants to know Mrs. Bennett's point of view on Jane's illness, because she trusts her mother. Mrs. Bennett thinks Jane is well enough not to worry, but she tells Bingley that Jane can't be safely moved home, so Jane must stay at Netherfield. And after she checks on Jane, she sits down to chat with Bingley and Darcy and completely humiliates Lizzie. She's too obvious about throwing Jane at Bingley and is uncultured in front of Darcy. Lydia and Kitty, who have tagged along, get Bingley to commit to throwing a ball at Netherfield as soon as Jane is better and enough white soup can be made. The chapter ends with Caroline Bingley trying to mock Darcy about his future mother-in-law, but Darcy stays stoic. Chapter 10 has time in the drawing room as Jane is upstairs convalescing. If I were to title this chapter, I'd call it something like Poor Caroline. Her flirting is just getting embarrassing. She keeps trying to insinuate herself to Darcy, and he's responding like she's an annoying puppy that he's trying to train. Or worse, a mosquito he's too polite to squash because it might get blood on the linens. Caroline is complimenting Darcy on his penmanship, the speed of his writing, 
the evenness of his lines. How witty his letter must be, even though she hasn't read it. It's painful to read. Mr. Bingley, Mr. Darcy, and Lizzie get into a -a tete-a-tete, while Caroline is desperately trying to get Darcy's attention, to no avail. Here is Professor Aisha Ramachandran again on the poor Caroline of it all. I mean, you know, when I teach this, I talk about the weapons of the weak, right? Like, what do people do when they're in situations where they don't have much recourse, right? They still find ways to assert their agency, and they're often small, and they're often small forms of aggression, and they're small forms of assertion, and it's easy to not notice. What makes Austin a brilliant writer is she notices them, right? And she points them out to us. I mean, this is a novel that's all about the things that women do in these small ways to make room for themselves in a world in which there isn't room for them. Caroline keeps making jokes about Lizzie's fine eyes. If she can't get Darcy's attention by complimenting him, she'll try by insulting Lizzie. As she perceives herself as weaker and weaker, her grabs from power become more and more flailing. But one could argue that in this scene, it's not just Caroline who's powerless. Everyone is losing power, or at least feels as though they are. When the Bingley sisters are playing piano, Darcy asks Lizzie to dance. Dancing, the way to love. And Lizzie ignores him the first time he asks, and then says no the second time. This could be considered a form of aggression, a weapon of the weak that this rejection makes Darcy weak too, and Caroline, who would never turn down Darcy by proxy. They are all being degraded in this room. Bingley is powerless to heal Jane. Jane is powerless to improve and go home. This is a hotbed of aggression, and because it's all in a drawing room, it is passive and full of microaggressions. In chapter 11, Jane is doing half better. She's able to come downstairs after dinner and spend a little time with the rest of the household. Bingley is just the absolute loveliest. Caroline continues on her pathetic crusade for Darcy's attention. She talks about how much she loves reading without reading a word. She gets the second volume of the book Darcy is reading just because he's reading the first volume. And well, that's not how reading works. Darcy and Elizabeth argue more and more, and the more they argue, the more Darcy feels in danger. Lizzie is trying to figure out how much she's allowed to laugh at Darcy when he tells her, my good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. Lizzie says it's a fault that she cannot laugh at. There's a crackle in the air in these conversations between Darcy and Lizzie. They are actually listening to one another and answering. Caroline is sighing and adding non sequiturs. Here's Professor Tara Menon on the power of Austin's dialogue. What we get with Austin, which seems in some ways like a remnant of, of the play form, and I'm thinking in particular of the scenes when Jane is sick and she's at Bingley's house and Elizabeth goes over and we get the very exciting romantic triangle of Caroline Bingley, Darcy, and Elizabeth Bennet. Many of those scenes, 
there's no attribution to the dialogue. And by that, I mean, we'll get a line of dialogue and it doesn't say Elizabeth said or she said. It's just a line of dialogue followed by another line of dialogue and another line of dialogue. So we're getting pure dialogue, which is what we imagine a play script to be, what a play script is rather. And Austin is able to do that because the characters speak in enough of an idiolect or we know enough about what they're going to say that we can tell as readers who is speaking. But it's not something that all novelists can do. You have to be very good at writing speech in order to do that. My whole bugbear, if you wanted to sum it up in a sentence, is that everyone says that the thing that Austen is really good at is free and direct discourse, and therefore the only thing that people talk about with Jane Austen is free and direct discourse, and I'm shouting in the corner, but she's really good at speech too. You can see the power of the subtlety in the dialogue in this love triangle. Caroline isn't in the dialogue, you can string together what she says and see that it's essentially a monologue, whereas Darcy and Elizabeth are speaking to one another. In today's final chapter, chapter 12, the Bennett sisters are finally allowed to go home. Tomorrow. Everyone is happy about the separation, except Bingley and Mrs. Bennett. Jane is glad to not be a burden, Caroline is glad Lizzie is leaving. Lizzie is thrilled to go home. And Darcy is glad that Lizzie is going away because she was attracting him more than he liked. Mrs. Bennet is upset that the girls are home, less flirting time. But Mr. Bennet is glad that his least ridiculous daughters are back. Now we'll see how this plan of Mrs. Bennet plays out. Did the time at Netherfield get Jane Bingley? I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is Live from Pemberley from Hot and Bothered. So the first thing that you need to know about this episode is, if you have not noticed so far, Vanessa is far sicker than Jane is at Netherfield right now. Yes, it's true. It's true. This is how I'm going to fall in love. Perhaps, perhaps. But, you know, I wish that I was there to tend to you like Lizzie. And instead, I might just sort of debate you like Darcy and maybe you will fall dangerously in love with me. I ain't scared. (laughs) Bring it. So this to me is like so much of the crux of what I find so delicious about this novel is the love that is sown in debate and discourse. And this is a direct product of the era that is ending as Austin is writing. This is the Enlightenment sexualized and brought into the drawing room. So the Enlightenment, I think a lot of people might think of in terms of science more than anything else. But it was a time in which science and politics and philosophy are all braided together and evolve over about a 100 50 years. It begins in the late 17th century, and it's pretty much seen as going through the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So Austin is writing at the tail end of it. So she's she's in the midst of this discourse, but she's also benefiting from the thinking that has come before her. So throughout this time, 
white men throughout Europe are radically rethinking what it means to live, what it means to live in a natural world, to be a human, to have feelings, to create a system of society. And a big part of that was thinking about notions of individualism and liberty, taking things outside of the divine structures that had formed the world. And in France, most famously, it's Rousseau and Voltaire who are really seeding that sort of thought. But in England, there was John Locke. And John Locke was someone who not only was thinking about these notions in government, which he was very famous for writing about, but also within the home and also within relationships. And he was the person who was really bringing women's liberty into the equation. John Locke is saying, you know, women have as much right as parents, as men. Women have as much agency in their hearts as men. We need to rethink what divorce might look like. These are all radical thoughts. And of course, on the heels of John Locke comes Mary Wollstonecraft. And Mary Wollstonecraft is the person who is saying, yeah, hello, enlightenment thinkers, dudes all. The things that you are saying about the world, you think you're only saying about half the world, let me tell you. Women are carrying all of this too, and we need to radically rethink what women's lives are, inner and outer, systemic and personal. And so this is the moment that Austen is writing in and the moment that her readers have been raised within. And this notion of debate between a man and a woman about what a person is, how a person should be, how we think of the formation of the self, how intimacy is developed, all of these questions that are just lighting these pages on fire between Lizzie and Darcy, they are so much the debates of the age. And they are also would allow us to have this love that is sown in a meeting of the minds. And the the thing that I feel like I'm only noticing now is that Bingley is very much a part of these scenes in a lovely way, right? Like, absolutely, the crackling is between Darcy and Lizzie. But I feel like Bingley, in my imagination, takes up the space of, like, lovable doofus. But he is self-mocking in a very cute way and is able to keep up. I don't think he's adding intellectually to the conversation, but he's definitely able to keep up with it and is interested in it and is most adorably to me delighted by Lizzie's intelligence, right? Rather than threatened by Lizzie's intelligence. And I don't know, I came away from the scene more in love with Bingley than I usually do. Oh, interesting, because I come away with it feeling how Austin so deftly writes these scenes. So I love Bingley, but I'm not in love with Bingley. Totally. I love his rapport with Lizzie. I love the fact that he's not cowed by Darcy, that he stands up for himself, that he's fun, that they have this wonderful dynamic. I never want him to leave the room. Right. But my heart doesn't skip a beat for him ever. And so... It feels like it's so perfectly modulated. She's so brilliant at that. I mean, I'm totally with Tara Menon about the skill of this dialogue and what she does with direct discourse, not just deepening our understanding of all these characters, but moving the action forward with every line of dialogue in a place where it seems like no action is happening. The thing that I really felt on this reading that I hadn't noticed before is how much Darcy's heart is in his throat. Right. Like Bingley and Lizzie are joking around a little bit. Bingley is like, ah, I would leave on a horse immediately. And then a friend would tell me to stay. And I'd be like, well, OK, I'll stay. 
And he's like making fun of how bad of a letter writer he is. And Darcy isn't making fun. It seems really important to him that Lizzie get an accurate picture of who he is. You can feel that this conversation is more high stakes for him than it is for Bingley and Lizzie. Oh, totally. And we feel Lizzie trying to calibrate how much she's allowed to think that he's laughable in moments. She's protecting him and his ego in moments. And that sounds like, oh, she's protecting his fragile male ego. But also it is fragile and he's showing some sort of fragility in caring about all of this. I also think that it allows us to swing away from some of the ridiculousness that we have found surrounding Darcy before. And it also allows the spotlight of ridiculousness to, for better or for worse, be focused on Caroline. And I have to say, well, structurally, intellectually, I can feel a lot of your sympathy for Caroline. I also am someone who believes that it is important for me <laughs> to say, oh, my God, she's the fucking worst. I do think that we can argue sort of a scarcity claim around men, especially decent men, especially tall, decent men with vast riches. <laughs> they are thin on the ground. Right. I know, honey. You and I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I think that this is another thing that comes out of this enlightenment moment is it is the first time in at least hundreds of years of English history in which women have agency in choosing their mate within a certain class. For a very, very long history, people of the lower classes could choose their mates because there was no estate at stake. But it is very, very recent in which women of wealth and men of wealth are allowed to choose each other instead of simply be married off. And we'll see later on that this is something that Lady Catherine has not gotten hip to yet. The notion that one does not simply arrange essentially an exchange of property in considering a marriage. So Caroline has both the freedom and the weight of this new power, where she gets to feel desire, she gets to feel agency, but only as much as it gets to feel her back. And I think that because of that, we are seeing a type of scrambling and desperation that exists within a, you know, the old scarcity of good men. And I do believe that she truly wants Darcy, but I think that we are seeing what a more intellectual and flirtatious desire actually looks like. So I agree. Caroline is the worst and she has no backbone. She's willing to say whatever she thinks Darcy is going to want to hear. She makes that really hilarious comment about how balls would be better if there was talking instead of dancing. And Bingley is like, sure, but then it wouldn't be a ball, right? Like she is just trying to insinuate herself into Darcy. My heart breaks for her because it is so painful to watch someone embarrass themselves. And you get the impression that Darcy might have married her if he hadn't met Lizzie, right? His, his repetitive thought that we get to hear is, oh no, I'm in real danger of Lizzie, even though she has these, you know, lower connections. And so you get the sense that he's sort of in this half enlightenment, half old school mode of he doesn't feel like he 
has to marry Anne Berg, who he's been promised to since birth. But Caroline is probably a pretty good option for him. And it seems to me that Caroline is behaving in a way where it's like <clears throat> knocking on the glass and being like, this used to get your attention. And now it doesn't. And I feel like someone turning cold on you overnight is really disorienting. And mostly it's just the humiliation. It's just the pain of watching someone be so embarrassing that I find heartbreaking. But she no, she's a snob. She's rude to Lizzie. I'm like, I don't understand why you can't just lose this one graciously. Also, it's bad tactic, Caroline. Like, hang back and wait for Lizzie to leave. That's the move here, girl. But it's just hard to watch. And of course, the reason that I think that Caroline is the worst is because of how she's tearing Lizzie down. It's the attack on Lizzie that makes me despise her the most, and especially the attack on Lizzie's class, because it does feel like Caroline, as much as she is availing herself of the new freedoms, that she also is very dependent on the old world order. As long as she doesn't have to give up any of her class power, picking her man is a great idea. But the notion that that social order would change is anathema to everything about her. And so she's punching down or so she thinks all the time. But of course, there's now something else that gets revered, which is not just mere class and beauty, but how one can can live a life of the mind. And I think that this is part of what we're seeing in Darcy is Darcy's evolution. And maybe we're seeing Elizabeth start to pay attention as well. Yeah, I think that they're all fighting up against the the power of manners, right? You get that line, as we've talked about, where Darcy says, oh, I'm in danger of falling in love with Lizzie, right? But it's manners that keeps them in the same room, even though he does not want to be in the same room as her, right? He wants to be away from her because he knows the more time he spends with her, the more he's going to fall in love with her. Lizzie doesn't want to be in this room. She wants to be home back at Longbourn. So does Jane. Bingley is the only one happy in this room. Caroline wishes she could be alone with Darcy, Mr. Hurst wishes that he could be playing cards. Mrs. Hurst is literally sitting there playing with her bracelets and rings. Like, that is how bored she is. And yet they have to sit in this room together because of this unwritten rule. And you just get the sense of the oppressiveness of these manners that can keep seven people in a room, literally none of whom want to be in a room. And I think that we think of this situation as like very English, right? You're all trapped in the drawing room together. But it's also, I mean, isn't this also what going on vacation <laughs> with friends can be like? Or I don't know, having a rainy day, like this whole feeling of being completely trapped with people you don't want to be in a room with, but then also being terrified that there's going to be some conflict that breaks out because there's so much silent tension in the room because no one is happy and no one can do anything about it. I mean, I think that Austin is sort of playing with social roles and manners, etc. But she's also showing us 
you may prefer novels about like indigent children in the city or men going off to war. But for most of life, this is life, honey. We're all trapped in this room together trying to figure out either how to get out of it or be happy in it. And it's impossible. And I think that, you know, in many ways, this is why a drawing room book like this was so radical in its day and also set the path for so much of literature, especially literature by women that actually says this is what it means to be in a house. This is what it means to have a family or to have friends. All these things that we idealize and yet the practice of them can feel like you're trapped, can feel like you hate people, can feel like things are boring, to feel like no one wants the same things, like that there's just miscommunication and silence and thwarted desire and that that, ladies, is life. And it's hard to read. I mean, the only thing I would pull out of what you said is that it's not raining, right? That the only thing that is actually trapping them is politeness. When you go on vacation with a group of friends, you have intentionally removed yourself to a cabin and you might regret it as soon as you're in the cabin and be like, oh, now we're here and our flights don't go back for four days. But like nobody meant for this to happen. Jane was invited for lunch And it is a week (laughs) later. You just want someone to scream. I'm entirely with you. I mean, which leads us to the quote that we want to do a close reading with, which is, you know, so they're, they're trapped in this room night after night after night. They're trapped in this room together day after day, right? Like just constantly they're in this drawing room. Whenever Lizzie is not taking care of Jane, she's in this drawing room with people. And Darcy keeps looking at Lizzie. He, like, can't tear his eyes off of Lizzie. And Lizzie keeps noticing it and is like, this is freaking weird. And here's the line. It says, she hardly knew how to suppose that she could be an object of admiration to so great a man. And yet that he should look at her because he disliked her was still more strange. And this, to me, speaks to what you were talking about of like, this is life, right? The drawing room. Because not only do the manners have power, and then not only does attraction have power and dialogue have power, but like our internal monologues can mess with us. She's observing fact with Darcy. He is staring at her. And she's like, but I literally can't imagine why. And again, it's this social moray where you can't look at someone and be like, Can I ask why you're looking at me so much? The ways in which this oppressive politeness can cause us to try to make sense of our thoughts in total isolation and come to the wrong conclusions is fascinating. Of course we end up with miscommunications. We literally can't look at someone and be like, why are you staring at me? And yet this is still what we do, right? Oh, totally. You go home from the party and you're like, why was he staring at me the whole time? And then a friend says, "Um, he couldn't take his eyes off of you because you're gorgeous and he was crazy about you and was too shy to talk to you. And you think, no, 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 he's just like some weird creep. No, maybe he's not, you know? And to me, the word right in the center of this sentence, great, is the one that I want to think about a little bit. Because she says, you know, she doesn't know how to suppose that she could be an object of admiration to so great a man. And I feel like 
Austin is working that word in every possible direction, right? Like so great in his own perception of himself, so great in terms of his class, so great in terms of how this whole room has elevated him. And there's also something that feels deeply sarcastic under all of those readings, too. And this is, you know, to me, the pleasure of Austin is is that that constant edge under every observation. And yet she isn't direct. She isn't clear exactly by what Lizzie means by this as she's taking us into Lizzie's thinking. The way that this sentence is embroidered just feels to me like it's this little sparkling gem of all the complications of their rapport and also all the complications of not having sort of broken intimate ground with someone yet in the way that you can actually speak feelings to them. And of course, during this era, you were not supposed to tell the object of your affection what you thought about them until you were engaged to them. There was supposed to be a proposal of marriage before you tell someone that you love them. And so the stalemate of courtship, and even like this isn't even official courtship yet, this is just the experience of desire, it's still with us. And yet thinking of how it's socially enforced in that room is so painful. I think you also get to the depth of Lizzie's understanding of the class difference between she and Darcy, right? Like, she's going to be offended later when he says, I almost didn't propose to you because you're of such a lower class than I am. But she knows it. This She hardly knew how to suppose that she could be an object of admiration to so great a man, right? She couldn't even dip a toe into the possibility of it. And then she's going to be offended when it comes out of his mouth. And I think that that's part of what's so offensive about it later is this is an insecurity she has. She knows that she shouldn't even hardly be able to start to suppose that he could like her. And so for him to say it later will validate all of that. The other reason, Lauren, that I love this quote is that in my life, Almost every conflict that I have, conflict with people who I have relationships with and trust and know to be good people, almost all of them are because of miscommunications. And I can know that. I can be like, historically, every time I've been hurt by Lauren, it has turned out to be a miscommunication. And therefore, I probably shouldn't be hurt and should just assume that it's a miscommunication. I will still assume bad intentions, right? Every single time, even though I know that. And yet the way that miscommunications are often played out in novels or in plays, I find so unrealistic, right? I often want to just like jump in the page and be like, this is what both of you mean, okay? Lauren meant it like this and Vanessa, you meant it like this. And oh my God, everybody stop fighting. But the the miscommunications between Darcy and Lizzie, I find so realistic, These are the kinds of miscommunications that I feel like stop the world from running smoothly, from people knowing that they actually care about each other, from people being hurt and blowing up really good friendships because someone didn't call on the right day or, you know, whatever it is. And I love that the whole plot essentially hinges on miscommunications that I find to be totally authentic and the kinds of miscommunications that I do believe still ruin lives and ruin friendships and can get in the way of our best lives. 
Though I feel like in this case, there's something that feels a little one-sided. I don't feel like they yet have a mutual relationship. As much as they might have mutual debate, what we are feeling is Darcy falling in love with Lizzie. We're not yet feeling Lizzie falling in love with Darcy. And I think that this sentence is very much about laying the groundwork of the miscommunication that will define this entire book, this entire narrative, and this entire way of living that I feel like you so aptly describe. I think it also does something else, which is it feels like a flicker of it occurring to her that this quote-unquote great man might actually like her in that way. And she doesn't like him in that way yet. And I think that this thing happens when someone who you think is so elevated as to not see you that way sees you that way, that it sets something in motion for you. And I'm not saying that Lizzie is someone who falls for Darcy because of his class, but It's certainly something that gets planted in his romantic admiration of her. Like, I don't think that if Darcy wasn't falling for Lizzie, that Lizzie would ever fall for Darcy. I think that Lizzie would continue to feel the same way that I feel about Darcy, which is that, you know, he's this pompous, snobby, humorless guy. Whereas she's just this, she's a wildfire and she's this flickering intelligence and humor. And she knows not to give a shit about all these things that are so prevalent in this society. And yet the act of having someone who isn't supposed to like you fall for you can make you feel differently about yourself and in turn feel quite differently about him. I think that that is a huge part of what's going on. I think that the one moment that complicates what you're saying is being 100% of what's going on, and I know that's not what you're saying, is this moment where Lizzie says, I like to laugh, right? I like to laugh at people. And then Darcy says this thing of, you know, once my good opinion is lost, it's lost forever. And Lizzie is like, oh, shoot, that's actually something I respect and can't laugh at. And that seems to me to be a moment where she's like, I'm this person who loves to laugh at everything and everyone and loves to laugh at everyone for the most essential thing about them, right? She loves to laugh at Jane's goodness. And Darcy says, this is the most essential thing about me. And she's like, okay, I can't laugh at that. And that to me is just such a sign of respect. And so I do think I agree with you that if he didn't like her, this whole ball wouldn't be rolling on her side. But I also think that there's a moment of real mutual respect here. I entirely agree. I just don't know if it's romantic in that moment. To me, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like it's intimacy building, though. And I love that Austin has given us a whole debate about what intimacy is and how it grows between friends. And then she lets us see it happen in that moment between Lizzie and Darcy. And I think it's nice that Lizzie isn't just waxing on about how tall he is. You know, there's no fine eyes equivalent, even though we already know that he's more handsome than Bingley, because our narrator has told us that. And it is that intimacy that crosses class, as well as the sort of mannered boundaries that exist between people. Not that class doesn't exist in those mannered boundaries, too, but the restrictions are starting to soften in a way, especially in that moment, which is how we'll know that something might be akin to real love eventually. There's something romantic about it to me 
insofar as it's different than any other dynamic Lizzie has, right? Like that is sexy to have a totally different dynamic. She and Charlotte, their relationship is based on teasing each other. Go play the piano, right? Like, oh, but you're such a good piano player. Like every other relationship Lizzie has is based on mockery with love. And again, like this is a kind of friend that I would have and that I adore. But the fact that Darcy is just at a totally different pace for her that she's like, she's doing jazz with everybody else and with him, like some sort of like slow waltz starts. Just by that differentiation, I find it romantic. I agree that that spark of romance hasn't come up in her, but just the change of pace is of note romantically to me. I totally agree. And it's also Austin saying, look, Lizzie, maybe you won't marry your father (laughs) because her father's whole dynamic and whole way of showing love is through teasing. And Mm -hmm. we see how, you know, as much as, you know, I have affection for that, that has battered his wife. And we see someone who is incapable of that sort of love at this point. But Lizzie certainly brings enough of it for both of them. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So that we get sort of a thesis of ridiculousness in the way people deal with it. Darcy says, the wisest and best of men, nay, the wisest and best of their actions, may be rendered ridiculous by a person whose first object in life is a joke. And Lizzie says, yeah, there are such people, but I hope to never be one of them. I hope to never ridicule what is wise or good. I feel like that's just Austin reaching out and speaking to us. And she's saying, some of you are going to say what Darcy says, that I make fun of everyone and that there's nothing interesting or precise in someone who makes fun of everyone, whereas I hope to never make fun of what is wise or good. And we see that there's this one line about Jane in these chapters that I find so interesting, which is we get this feeling that Jane is someone who can be pushed around and cares so much about what other people think. But there's a line about Jane. Jane was firm where she felt herself to be right. And that is a line in which Austin and Lizzie have no irony about Jane. I think Austin is right about herself. 
She's willing to mock, you know, follies, nonsense, whims, and inconsistencies in everyone. No one is above that. But she tries not to mock what is wise and good. And I love that we literally get a thesis of like, these are the ridiculous things I'm going to laugh at. And these are the things that I would never laugh at. I also think it's such a great mission statement for comedy. You know, I mean, comedy is something that people needed to defend back then. And as we all know, it is still being defended now. And if you can follow Austin's code for comedy, you can be as biting and derisive and skewering and hilarious as you want. And this is why, in part, it was so upsetting to me when we all learned the truth about Louis C.K., because I felt like, as a comic, he had like a touch of the philosopher king in which he elevated what was wise and good, and he skewered the rest. And then to find out that in the end, he was not wise and good. In fact, he was very unwise and very, very ungood. And then has just doubled down on that. He's made his comedy about being unwise and ungood now in an unwise and ungood way. That just feels to me like it's almost like a character that Austin could have written, that this in many ways settles the debate about comedy that had been going on for a couple hundred years before this book and is going on a couple hundred years afterwards. Yeah, I love this as a thesis for comedy. I think that it's exactly right. And I think it's going to be really fun next week to watch Austin start to go full satire on Collins. Oh, can't wait till we start talking about Collins. Oh, my God. It's so interesting. She does. She sets it up. She's like, look, I'm going to make fun of what's ridiculous. And I'm not going to make fun of good men like Darcy for their goodness. I'll make fun of what's ridiculous about Darcy. But here's going to be a man who has no wisdom and very little goodness. And so I'm going to mock literally everything about him. A man of the cloth. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So next week, we'll be reading chapters 13 and 14. And we are meeting Mr. Collins, everyone. So I keep thinking about Caroline tearing down Lizzie and this whole trope of women tearing down women. And I wanted to get an author named Nell Stevens on the phone, who's such a brilliant observer of relationships. She writes novels and memoir rich in literary history. You may have read what was published in the States as The Victorian and the Romantic. It was Mrs. Gaskell and Me in the UK. And her new book, which is about to come out, is called Briefly a Delicious Life. It's about Georges Sand and Frédéric Chopin and a teenage ghost who witnesses their love and art. And she's a professor at the University of Warwick and a dear friend and the partner of Ellie Williams, who you might recall from On Air. Let's see if we can get her on the phone. Hi, Nell. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I think we've probably both been unkind about other women off the page. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're just going to admit it straight away. Aren't we? <laughs> right? I mean, because people can be awful. And if you and I were sitting around talking about what was happening in Netherfield, I would probably be as unkind to Caroline Bingley as she is to Lizzie, though I think from a different place. Because Caroline is is tearing down Lizzie from a place of having some agency, having some desire, and then feeling Lizzie just swoop in and screw with the whole thing. Is is this kind of ruthlessness something that that this role is originating, do you think, on the page? Or have we been here before? I, for me, the word is agency, the one you just used. That is is Caroline's word that they're kind of trapped in this, it's a system, like Austin is a documentarian of systems, right? And and they're locked into this system, this marriage market. And she's performing the little agency she has, like, right? They, they have money and they have gossip and they have these kind of small and large social cruelties. And that's, those are the only things available to her. And when I start thinking about this, I start feeling quite sorry for her, even though she's awful. But I think we, I mean, she's not the kind of the first awful woman like this in the page. We see all kinds of awful women in history, but she is for me, the most memorable of that type, right? Of, of a woman who's using everything she's got when she's really not got much to tear down someone else. And Yet I feel like from Caroline forward, we have this really specific trope, right? I mean, we see it in Jane Eyre with Blanche Ingram. We see it in the House of Mirth. To me, it's what defines the Sweet Valley High series, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, this whole notion of mean girls, we never see men operating this way, at least not straight men. Right. And for me, that is to do with it coming from a place of disempowerment, right? The people who are most invested in maintaining a system are the ones who are also suffering within it often (laughs) and so Caroline Bingley and the kind of archetypal mean girl have bought into the idea that the way they win is through attracting men and in an Austin context that that's a financial decision as much as anything else primarily a financial decision and if you've bought into this and you've probably suffered for it right suffered hugely and I mean the Bingleys have put so much effort into trying to make their new wealth look like old wealth. And they're desperately trying to, to achieve this veneer of, of a certain kind of attainment. And Lizzie is coming in and saying, hey, maybe that doesn't matter. You know, What if everything that you've invested in isn't actually that important and I'm just charming and quite cool? And that's so threatening when someone has just decided to work with the system that they're in. That's why she's always playing the piano, right? (laughs) She's not got many tools and she's really bothered that Lizzie Bennet is not playing by the same rules. It's so interesting because, you know, when I would think about a feminist reading of this, you know, I I think a lot about about the sort of scarcity that Caroline is operating within. But bringing in this notion that Lizzie's actually tearing down the whole system and causing that sort of chaos, it makes me think, a lot about a more contemporary feminism and about what it's been like for more traditional women ever since the feminism of the 60s and 70s, thinking about even the feminism of right now, of what does it mean if you've invested your whole life according to a certain rule book, and then you find out that the rule book is the problem. But it's too late, right? Or is it too late? I mean, it's I'm, I'm imagining a world in which Caroline just sort of like 
takes her hair down and runs through the field and dirties her hems and says, screw it. I'm not going to care about the piano either. I mean, is that is that a possibility or is this the sort of battle against women so often and for so long where it's like there's the trope that plays by the rules and the trope that doesn't and that this conflict is going to exist forever? <laughs> Right. I mean, that's the tragedy of Caroline, right? Is there's probably no way for her to to win this. She's going to play by the rules and live within the system. And if she doesn't, that's probably worse. But I think you're right in seeing it as really still a contemporary issue. I, you know, we see it so much in particularly conservative women who have bought into a certain kind of rigidity and their reaction to queer people or trans people or gender non-conforming people is coming from a place of, I read it, and maybe this seems condescending, but like having suffered, right? They've suffered terribly. They've given up huge amounts to protect what they feel they should have. And it's threatening when people are doing it differently. And I think I, I see it in a very small and Austinian way in, in the Lizzie-Caroline dynamic. And do you think that Austin is sympathetic towards Caroline? I think Austin both despises and loves them all equally. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, the, the voice of Pride and Prejudice is so hard to pin down and it's so precise that there has to be tenderness in it, right? You can't pay that much attention to, to human nature and not on some level care about it deeply. And I, I feel that, but I, she also is laughing at everybody all the time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, she's laughing at the system. Right. From within it. Mm-hmm. From her own place of oppression within it. I keep thinking about the movie Pretty in Pink as we're reading this. And I keep thinking about, you know, sort of Molly Ringwald's less femme persona, in addition to being a less privileged persona, Compared with, I don't know the character's name, but it's James Spader's, you know, sort of blonde, blown out pseudo girlfriend who is just the meanest and like the absolute like 1980s California femme. And she's the worst. And I do wonder if there's a dynamic where that like super femme type is always the mean girl type. Like we see it in Mean Girls itself. Lindsay Lohan needs to be brought into being a mean girl, but it is, you know, the blondes with the manicures who who really emblematize the grotesquery of it. Is there a little bit of misogyny in that, do you think? Inevit- I think inevitably. For me, it comes back to the kind of people who are consuming these stories <laughs> because the mean girls don't read, right? <laughs> Miss Bingley doesn't read. So the people who read are the Lizzie's and the Mary's, right? And and we are the people who've suffered from that. We, I said we there, I'm putting my cards on the table, but we suffer at the hands of the Mean Girls. And so that we're, we're again, just locked into this lose-lose cycle of punishing each other because of patriarchy, right? No one's winning. The high femme Mean Girls are, are trapped and and cruel and one way that those of us who don't fit that type feel a little power is to send them up and punish them in these stories Um, and Miss Bingley is she's humiliated right and of course Tina Fey is the ultimate Mary Lizzie hybrid (laughs) 
<laughs> and I think it's the readers of these books, but also the authors of them, that this is this is our agency. This is our opportunity to be the Caroline Bingley in some way, to make those women in the system suffer in the same way that we suffer from having those women in the system and from being locked in the same system that we can't overthrow. So it's this prism of patriarchy and it's this prism of voice and agency. And somehow I wonder if we ever get beyond it. I don't think we do in Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) (laughs) Or Mean Girls. (laughs) Or now, or now. That's right. And that's the kind of beautiful microcosm of Austin is is showing us that in these, in these, it's mostly in rooms, right? It's a novel that takes place in rooms and, and in houses and those enclosed spaces where all of this is playing out, that's still playing out. It's still, it's still exactly the dynamic that so many people fall into. Well, Nell, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. (laughs) It's been a real joy. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Live from Pemberley. We are a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. And if you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are distributed by ACAST. Thanks, as always, to our Jane-level patrons, Viscountess Elise Kenigaratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Knight Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiara Landia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks this week to Nell Stevens, Aisha Ramachandran, Tara Menon, Lara Glass, Gabby Iori, AJ Uramas, Julia Argy, Nikki Zolte, and Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.